Welcome to Financial Repression Authority's Roundtable Insight, where the best fund managers, economists, and industry leaders discuss the key investment issues and challenges in the current macroeconomic environment. Hi, welcome to FRA's Roundtable Insight. This is Richard Benuli. Today we have Charles Hugh Smith, author, leading global finance blogger, and as we call him, America's philosopher. He's the author of nine books on our economy and society, including A Radically Beneficial World, Automation, Technology, and Creating Jobs for All, Resistance, Revolution, Liberation, A Model for Positive Change, and The Nearly Free University in the Emerging Economy. His blog of twominds.com has logged over 55 million page views, well more now, and is number seven on CNBC's top alternative finance sites. Welcome, Charles. Thank you, Richard. It's always a pleasure to be on your program. Great. And uh, with thought with focus today on actually your new book, Pathfinding Our Destiny, Preventing the Final Fall of Our Democratic Republic. Uh, this book um, it, it, uh, is a great uh, book that actually addresses what's happening now uh, in terms of the, uh, the dysfunction in government, uh, what we see happening uh, in the news media, uh, the polarization of, of the public uh, in the Western world, uh, what, what uh, lays in stores for us. Uh, would you like to give us uh, initially a synopsis of the book? Okay, thank you, Richard. Um, I think uh, what I'm trying to uh, address here in this book is um, that we're entering an era of what I call nonlinear change. In, the, in other words, as opposed to the linear change, which is uh, rather steady, uh, slow, and kind of predictable. So incremental adjustments are all that's needed to get through uh, linear uh, change eras. But as you enter a nonlinear change era, then it's more like what happened in the global economy in 2008, 2009. Systems start um, failing on a uh, very large scale, and they, they fail very quickly. And um, there's a lot of chaotic uh, turmoil in, in this nonlinear change um, eras. And so um, I'm, I'm drawing upon the work of a bunch of different um, historians and analysts, um, one of which we've discussed in the past, Peter Turchin, who uh, presents a very strong case as to why we're entering a period of rising discord and, uh, and a disintegration of, of um, systems and uh, you know, kind of unifying narratives. So um, I guess the, the idea of my book was to, to discuss this, um, the difficulties in getting through a nonlinear change era and also to, to present some strategies that would be uh, the, the more successful strategy to get through that and, and actually come out ahead, if you will. In other words, having, um, having gained or prospered at, despite these challenges uh, that are unprecedented. Mm -hmm. And so uh, initially you, you point out um, what we have now is twin cancers that threaten the, our democracy uh, namely, the the idea of the government now captive to special interests and big money. Can you elaborate? 
Okay, right. Um, one of the, uh, the key dynamics that I, I'm trying to discuss in the book is how centralization um, has entered uh, sort of what we call an S-curve, where it, it worked really well uh, over the last, say, 400 years in which um, you could leverage problem solving um, by, by centralizing power and wealth, right? And so that was um, sort of the whole imperial project that, that, that Britain and, and the colonial powers uh, followed. So, but now we're at the point where centralization is actually, is actually causing more problems than it's solving. And it's at the top of the S-curve and it's in the decline phase. And so um, one of the core problems with centralization is once you centralize uh, political power, then it's much easier for wealth or powerful individuals to capture control of the government because you really only have to influence, you know, a few dozen people really. Um, and then you've captured this enormous um, concentration of power. And that's, that's partly what we see in, in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere in other national capitals that very uh, wealthy corporations and financiers have uh, an outsized um, control over the mechanisms of governance. And as studies have, have shown, the like bottom 99.9% really don't have much of a say anymore in what their government decides to do or, or its policies that it pursues. And I would also argue that centralization of financial wealth and power has also made um, the system much more vulnerable to disruption. And um, just as a quick example, if you only have five money center banks and they control, you know, the vast majority of, of um, financial instruments and, and mortgages and so on, then any kind of crisis that affects them quickly spreads throughout the entire system, which is exactly what happened in 2008, 2009. Whereas if you had a system with a thousand uh, decentralized banks, um, each drawing upon its own local resources and, and only slightly connected to each other, then a crisis in one area that even involved up to 100 banks would not bring down the entire system. So uh, my point here is centralization itself creates systemic uh, vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. And so this um, is basically characterized as a loss of confidence uh, and trust in in uh, government institutions, uh, if you will. Right. Um, there's uh, two uh, two major uh, dynamics that 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 this um, distortions of the system created by extreme concentrations of, of wealth and power. There's two. One is the loss of trust or confidence in the institutions running society and the economy. Um, the other one is um, tremendous uh, wealth inequality in that the top 0.1% or so has been, um, as this chart, uh, which I label the fruits of financialization from the New York Times, um, the vast majority of the, of the income and, and wealth that's been created in, in the last decade has flowed to the very top of the uh, financial um, pyramid. And so that's creating um, a lot of discord in and of itself, right? Because it's, it's difficult to have a stable society with um, widespread opportunity and, and social mobility and a social contract that people believe in when 
you know, most of the gains are flowing to this tiny percentage of people at the top. And um, I have this other chart here, which is, um, uh, is another kind of way of describing confidence and trust. And it's a sort of a, 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 a trust-based chart, which shows that confidence, experience, and values combine to create trust. And I think um, the way I understand trust in, in this context we're describing, um, you know, the, the people's confidence in their government, the people's confidence in um, their institutions. Um, if, if that trust is part of the social contract, right, but it's also part of our social capital. In other words, societies that lack um, confidence and experience and values that, that, are, at, that are expressed in the, um, the institutions um, they're basically kleptocracies, right? Nobody trusts anybody. There's no rule of law. And it's just, it's run by uh, an oligarchy. And um, so, of course, nobody has any faith or, or trust or confidence in the government because the government doesn't really serve their interests, right? And mm -hmm. so a lot of studies have shown that the United States, for sure, and, some of, and uh, arguably other, other Western nations, too, have, have fallen into this uh, basically trap of being ruled by oligarchies. And, and as a consequence, we've lost trust. Yeah. Right. And then the, um, the overall crisis is being exacerbated by a toxic social media-fueled tribalism, as you make the point, that has replaced uh, what do you think with which side are you on? Right. And um, we can we can discuss like how and why that's that's come about, but um, there's a sense that a lot of people have uh, people that tend not to be so ideological that they see um, this as as um, as being exploited by um, you know the powers that be. In other words, you can easily uh, divide you know the populace into warring camps if you introduce all these divisive topics and, and promote them heavily in the mainstream media. So that's certainly not helping. Um, another point, another key point of my book was I wanted to explore the idea that the core survival mechanism in any society or economy, you know, is its adaptability. In other words, what, what do we learn from um, evolutionary principles, you know, natural selection, and so on, um, which work not just in natural ecosystems, but in, you know, human social systems. And um, so kind of in a broad brush, societies and economies that, that have the ability to adapt quickly to changing conditions, that they're very flexible, they, they, they support experimentation and dissent, you know, a, a diversity of ideas and solutions, this kind of... Uh, foment, if you will, this kind of bubbling um, mixture of, of dy dynamic ideas and experimentation, this is what leads to success. You get a lot of failures, but you work through the, the failures quickly, and then you um, the good ideas spread quickly. And this is basically evolution in a nutshell, right, is that when species are put under stress by changing conditions, they uh, generate a lot, of, um, a lot of experimentation, if you will, and then um, natural selection weeds out the, the good from the bad. And, and if it happens quick enough, the species can, can adapt um, by uh, 
basically spreading these successful adaptations throughout the species. And so it's, it really works the same for, for companies and, and communities and, and economies as a whole. And so when you have a highly centralized system that's captured by an oligarchy at the top, then that, that system is really static and sclerotic. It's, it's, it's the opposite of an adaptable system because everybody that's benefiting, which is a handful of people at the top, they are going to resist any kind of change which might threaten their wealth and power. And so um, and, and this is the, the sort of opposite of the system we want if we want to be able to adapt quickly. And you have another chart that shows how uh, what we really have is the illusion of incremental change. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, this is um, a chart that I uh, that I made up myself because I couldn't find any that really described what I think is a is a core dynamic of of failing systems. Is failing systems, and you could use Venezuela or you could use you know the United States or it, 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 there's a lot of examples out there um, that. The status quo says we're going we're gonna to fix the problems by doing these little incremental steps. And it might be lowering interest rates a little bit or injecting some liquidity or um, taking a little more, raising the taxes to fund pensions or these kinds of things. But in the, if you're dealing with fundamental um, weaknesses or fundamental crises in the system, these kind of incremental changes simply don't work. They create an illusion that you're, that you're making progress, but they, they don't really get to the point of changing what's broken. And, and like say, for instance, in the United States, what we would have to change would be um, you'd have to change the political system so it was no longer serving an oligarchy. And that, that's, that would mean um, making hugely radical changes in the structure of the system. And so let, let's explore um, how that can be done in terms of solutions and uh, migration strategy. So, so uh, what, what do you suggest uh, as being the solution? Um, and, uh, and then we can talk about how, how to get there uh, for a migration strategy. So what, what do you see first on, on the solution exactly? Well, that's a great question, Richard, and I really like your, your uh, reference here of migration strategy because, of course, you know, very large systems and even, even our own lives rarely change like overnight, right? Um, there might be a crisis that erupts overnight, but the, the process of adapting to that and creating solutions is, is obviously a multi-step uh, multi uh, process. I think the, the, the key that I'm suggesting in the book is if we look at you know, evolutionary principles and, and the, the principles that support fast adaptation and, and, you know, the Silicon Valley kind of cliche is um, fail fast, fail often, right? Because that's uh, that idea of experimentation is you, you get that dynamism and you get to the success uh, quickly. If you are willing to take chances, if you're willing to, uh, uh, entertain a lot of ideas and, and experiment, then, then uh, the good ideas are become visible and then you can propagate those. So that, if, how, how do we create a system that does that? And the number one thing is to decentralize wealth and power so that instead of having, like I said, five money center banks, you have hundreds of banks. And instead of 
one authority ruled by a small clique of people um, that say in the federal government that controls education policy and economic development and all these kinds of things, you'd instead decentralize that power so that each community had capital and power to pursue what works in that community or that, that uh, region. And um, the internet is a, a tool that um, can be abused, but it, it can also um, be a tool for spreading innovations that, that work, right? So uh, for local communities. So my basic proposal is if you want to have an adaptable um, economy and society, you've got to radically decentralize um, the capital and power or you're not going to have an adaptable system. You're going to have a system that's basically designed to fail once it's um, stressed by nonlinear crises. Do you see the current movement uh, coming out of France, the uh, the so-called yellow vests, uh, uh, les gilets jaunes, uh, as they call it there, uh, do, do you see that as a manifestation of, of what's happening per, per the premise of your book? Absolutely. Um, and I think that uh, when we talk about a migration strategy, um, I think the... Um, the key dynamics I see is I see tremendous resistance from the oligarchy and these sort of ruling elites at the top. And um, we, can, we can see this in, in the French uh, sort of elites um, response to the Yellow Vest uprising, which is they've been completely tone deaf, right? They really don't understand this and they're, um, they, they're, they're afraid because they are used to dealing with like um, – a union that they can, you know, placate with a 20% raise or, you know, some student leaders they can arrest and then the whole thing falls apart. And so this kind of decentralized self-organizing uh, movement of, of just loss of confidence in the government entirely, right? That's really what the Yellow Vests are saying is we no longer trust you. We have zero confidence that you represent us or are even willing to represent us. Um, and so the, um, how do you get, what happens in that kind of environment, which is, which is to me fits this nonlinear idea that I'm, I'm promoting, which is these kinds of demonstrations or, or a public loss of confidence can, can explode like at a geometric rate and it can happen extremely quickly. And, and it gives the society and the economy an opportunity for like a massive reset, Right. And um, that reset has to be broad-based. It can't just be run by, you know, 12, you know, elite guys from elite universities in some rooms and they secretly create some policy. That's what's wrong with the system. That's not going to be a solution, right? So we, um, we might be able to get um, from a yellow vest type uh, movement, we might actually make some progress if they can impose – um, a decentralization of, of capital and, and power, then, then you've got to set up for, uh, for spreading broad-based opportunity. And, and really that's what people want, right? They want, they want agency and they want, um, they want opportunity. And I have a chart here that um, a lot of people might dismiss as, um, you know, touchy-feely or psych psychological as opposed to structural but it's called Ikigai, which is a Japanese concept. It means
um, the purpose of your life or the reason for being. And it uh, is a Venn diagram in which it, it, it uh, shows a, a various concepts that overlap um, what you're good at, your passion, your mission, what the world needs, you know, uh, what you can be paid for. And so uh, the point of this chart in, in the context we're describing is a lot of people are pursuing um, this sort of centralized model where there's a, there's a few winners of globalization and financialization and, and financial oppression, right? And then um, those people are, are, um, have agency and capital and, and, um, and have fulfilling work. And then the losers of globalization and financial oppression, which is, may end up being the majority of the workforce, they're supposed to just kind of scrape by on universal basic income or something. Then, in other words, you're supposed to just kind of consume some sort of minimal amount to stay alive. And that's what your life is from now on. And I think that if that's what we consider a, a, a solution, we have completely failed. Because everybody wants a purpose in life. They want to be able to contribute. They want to be able to get ahead. And they want opportunity that's, um, that's broad-based, not just uh, reserved for an elite at the top. And so this Ikigai chart is like, it's, um, can be seen as a model for the kind of economy we really want if we want to say we're going to succeed um, if, uh, in a broad-based uh, way as opposed to just succeeding and keeping the oligarchy at the top of the pyramid. Uh, given the, the rising tide of social and political disunity and dysfunction, uh, is, is there any migration strategy to get there or, or is the only way through crash and burn of, of the entire system? Yeah, I, um, I, I don't want to sound like apocalyptic, um, but the crash and burn, <laughs> yeah. the crash and burn is probably the quick way um, because the, the alternative way, like meaningful change, would require the ruling elites to recognize that their kind of greedy uh, embrace of, of the majority of wealth and power that this is destructive and that they're going to, they're going to consciously let go of that. And that's asking a lot of, of um, people, especially people who um, the ruling elites and most societies have lost touch with the common people. And then we, and as, as we were discussing with the yellow vest, the, the French elites um, are just really tone deaf. They don't get it because they don't have any experience in, in, in real, in, in real life of the yellow vests. And so this is, I think, typical of ruling elites is that they've uh, sequestered themselves. They live in a little elite, elitist bubble. Um, you know, they're flying in a private jet to Switzerland and so on. Um, and so to ask them to, to give up power and wealth uh, for the good of society, um, they already believe that they're acting in the best interests of society by um, like clinging on to their wealth and power. So uh, it's, it's hard to see how we can migrate from um, a really asymmetric system to a more balanced system um, other than through some sort of crisis. And of course, crisis is opportunity too, right? Yes, exactly. And uh, uh, any final words on um, how you see this playing out and the, the time frame? Yeah, that's a great question, Richard. And um, I would say that um, individually, 
and in terms of our own um, assets and capital, um, we we would want to seek out uh, locations, countries, uh, regions, cities, neighborhoods, communities where um, the economy and the society is more balanced, is 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 more symmetrical, it's more decentralized, it's more a network of equals rather than a really rigid hierarchy because these rigid hierarchies are of course prone to failure uh, for a lot of reasons. And um, so if we can get, if we can get ourselves into a more survivable, more adaptable structure uh, on a local scale, then I think we're um, individuals and households are going to be uh, better placed to get through nonlinear change. And we, so that means we want to avoid um, the worst excesses of, of financial repression, which would be being in debt um, and and having a large amount of our income devoted to debt service. We'd, we'd want to get away from being dependent on one employer um, or a hierarchy in which we might be fired or let go or have our pension cut in half. Um, so you want to, you want to withdraw your dependence on these highly centralized systems, which are really prone to failure. I think that's, that's kind of the solution on the individual household level. And, and in terms of enterprises, then you want to, if you have a say in it, then you certainly want to um, centralize your, um, you know, your management, want to um, diversify your income streams and uh, not be dependent on say a government contract or, or that kind of thing. So that's kind of the path I see forward, which is more on the individual household enterprise level, as opposed to um, expecting a, a highly centralized system to um, basically surrender all of its power. <laughs> mm -hmm. Wow. That's a great insight and words of wisdom. Uh, able to connect all the dots on what's happening today and where we're going. The name of the book, Path Finding Our Destiny, Preventing the Final Fall of Our Democratic Republic by Charles Hugh Smith. Thank you very much, Charles, for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you, Richard. And if anybody wants to read the first um, couple chapters of the book for free, just go visit um, oftominds.com and you can download the PDF and, and um, have a look at, at, the, uh, at the beginning of the book. Great. Thank you, Charles. Thank you. The FRA Roundtable Insight Show is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the show each involve their own unique risk factors which are not discussed on the show. Any discussions among the panel participants or responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the panel participants and do not take into consideration the listener's suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Please be advised that you invest or speculate at your own risk.